This is the Charter Nation Podcast. You're listening to Charter Nation. This is the Charter Nation Podcast. Produced by the California Charter Schools Association. I'm your host, Anna Tentakoulos. Thanks for listening. The pandemic continues to reveal that chronic stress negatively impacts students' academic progress as well as their social and emotional well-being. How can we transform the state's public education system so that kids get the wraparound services they so desperately need? That is the topic of this week's Changemakers interview, so stay tuned for that. Then later on in this episode, we'll talk about student enrollment trends throughout the state. Large urban school districts like Los Angeles Unified are experiencing steep declines amid the pandemic. Where are these students going? We'll get some answers. But now, on to Changemakers. Changemakers is our regular segment in which Mirna Castrojon, the president and CEO of the California Charter Schools Association, interviews trailblazers and champions of public education. Mirna's special guest this week is Maria Echeveste, the former deputy White House chief of staff under President Bill Clinton. She served in this role during the inception of charter school legislation at the federal level. Here's a flashback from that time. For an increasing number of families, charter schools are the right choice. In fact, there are now waiting lists at seven out of 10 existing charter schools as more parents realize that more innovation and creativity can produce good results for their children. Ms. Echeveste is now the president and CEO of the Opportunity Institute in Berkeley, which is working to advance the notion of whole child equity in public education. Here's Mirna Castrojon with this Changemakers interview. Before we dive deep into this uh, topic of whole child equity, I'd love for you to walk us down memory lane a bit. Why did uh, President Clinton champion charter schools, opening this new avenue, these new laws that gave birth to charter public schools across the country? Well, I think it's important to remember that when Clinton was governor of Arkansas, I had really spent a lot of time looking at the K through 12 education and also early childhood education in Arkansas. And so they came to Washington with some deep knowledge um, and experiences about what are the challenges, the need for flexibility, the need to provide um, opportunities for innovation. And in two very important ways, the charter school effort was to create laboratories for innovation that could help inform the public school system and really spur the kind of uh, improvements and changes that so many communities are and were demanding. But it's also important to remember that there was also a and continues to be a pretty strong school voucher movement. Clinton was a centrist Democrat who saw the charter school as an opportunity to help communities, especially communities who felt that their children were not getting the education they deserved, to have an alternative to the school voucher movement. And charter schools was that vehicle. Now, unfortunately, charter schools are seen as, you know, in opposition to public schools. I think there's tremendous work going on 
across the country in trying to highlight innovative practices. And this is actually why the whole child equity movement is one that can be applicable to charter schools as well. As we look forward to the next 30 years, Maria, um, what would be your charge or your challenge to California's public charter schools, understanding that we're still navigating this competition versus collaboration model and really contribute to the public dialogue about what education can and should be? Trauma, adversity, poverty impact a child's ability to learn. If you step back just for a second and think, of course, if you have trauma in your house, it's kind of hard for you to sit as a fourth grader and go through a reading lesson because someone came home and there was a violent altercation or there was a shooting outside in your neighborhood, or you can tell that your family is worried about getting evicted from their home. The pandemic has exacerbated those traumas. So what whole child equity tells us is, yes, it impacts the brain, but the brain is also incredibly malleable. With the right supports, children can learn. And so how do, we cannot expect the school, with a public school, a charter school, or frankly, a private school either, you cannot expect the school to respond to every need of the student, but they can be a hub for accessing services. What if we actually got all of our systems to work together to address the needs of children and families so that the potential of every child could, in fact, be put on a road to success? Um, Governor Newsom and the state legislature recently approved $20 billion in state education funding. And it really has the promise of setting in motion a very sweeping and ambitious set of programs that do look at schools as full service community schools with wraparound mental health, social and family services. Is this the right approach? Can it get us there? What do you foresee are some of the challenges and obstacles to realizing that vision? What whole child equity is saying is the education system is one system of government that touches a child and family for at least 12 years, right? You don't engage with the healthcare system that frequently the way you do an education system. So how do you utilize early warning system like a school discipline issue? Let's just take that issue. What if instead in second grade when a child is acting out we created um, opportunities for the kind of counseling, the kind of intervention that could address what, what is going on with that child. It's, it's a complicated challenge because it isn't just the school or the education system. We need to make sure that schools and county mental health departments are working together to, where necessary, access those mental health services for children as they need them. Um, let's dive a little bit into your own uh, education experience. You grew up uh, partly in Clovis, didn't you? And uh, with your family, worked as a farm worker before attending Stanford and UC Berkeley. Tell me, Maria, what are some of those seminal experiences in your formation that you still anchor to as you develop the work of the Institute? 
For many people, my personal story is like so many in our country, sort of the American dream, right? And there's such a premium put on as sort of like, you made it, so anyone can, right? I'm the eldest of seven. My parents had no education um, and we're farm workers in Fresno County and then Ventura County. But what I recognize is that California invested in public schools and education. We at the top 10 when I was growing up here in California. Now we're in the bottom 10. Okay, so we're not investing the way we did once. And that includes the University of California, right? And CSUs. But more importantly is I can vividly recall my classmates who lived in the housing projects with me in Oxnard, California, and know that I am no different from them. You know, I sometimes joke and say, the reason I got to where I got was because my father was so strict that I didn't have any choice but to read. <laughs> Are we related, Maria? <laughs> but but the accident of birth should not be determinative yes. of whether a child can achieve their potential. And so that's what drives me. I know that education um, has provided a path. And all I have to do is go back to my village, my father's village in Mexico, and know what my life would have been. Mexico does not invest in its people. And the United States and California, we've been on a path where we don't invest in the human capital. And this is, if we don't do it, if we don't educate our young, which are, who are predominantly, increasingly Latino, Asian, African-American, if we don't invest in them, then our economic growth, California's fifth largest economy in the world, will not continue. So this is, this is both self-interest, but also because it's the right thing to do. It's like, you never know the potential of a child who may be, you know, a scientist who discovers a cure for cancer, but never had the chance because they had no education. So as you can tell, I'm extremely passionate about the role of education and the need for every child to have access to quality education. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's certainly my mission to ensure that charter schools in California, public charter schools in California, continue to be a, that pathway uh, to opportunity. And it's our job to eliminate those barriers. What an inspiration, Maria. I, I want to thank my guest, Maria Echeveste, on that note, for being such a wonderful guest on Changemakers and for all the work that you do, Maria. Continue to challenge us and lead in California and the nation. Maria is president and CEO of the Opportunity Institute in Berkeley. I'm Mirna Castrejon, president and CEO of the California Charter Schools Association, and you've been listening to Changemakers. That Changemakers interview is part of CCSA's ongoing tribute to influential Latinx leaders in California in honor of Latino Heritage Month. This is the Charter Nation podcast. I'm Anna Tentakulis, your host. Now on to data and research. My co-hosts for this segment will be folks from CCSA's data team, 
And today I'm joined by Jonathan Slakey, CCSA's Director of Data Analysis. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, Anna. It's good to be here. Great to have you. So today we are diving into charter school enrollment data in California. No doubt you've seen or heard about how large urban school districts like Los Angeles, Oakland, Sacramento, San Francisco, how they're losing public school students at traditional school sites amid the pandemic. So where are they going? Are they turning to charter public schools? Well, the answer is a bit more complex. So Jonathan, help us understand this. First, let's start with the big statewide numbers. Yeah, totally. So I wanted to start with the traditional public school system to give a little context for the charter numbers. And really traditional public schools have been seeing declines in enrollment for years now. It hasn't been as big as the pandemic, but there have been slight declines. We're talking like 20 to 30,000 kids a year leaving the traditional public school system. But then we saw the pandemic and those numbers jumped like quadrupled compared to what it's been before the pandemic. So during the pandemic, over 200,000 fewer K-12 students um, than were there before. Kindergarten in particular, for example, had a huge decline in traditional public school enrollment. So when we're talking about numbers, basically the traditional public school system lost the county of Alameda in terms of the number of kids that are no longer going to a traditional public school. So then we turn over to charter schools and we actually saw charter school enrollment go up a little bit uh, compared to before the pandemic. That is particularly the case for non-classroom-based charter schools. A lot of families wanting to go with a school that has that experience uh, teaching remote since that's what every kid had to do during the pandemic. I mentioned kindergarten earlier, we saw a huge decline in non-charters. So did we see an uptick at charters? And actually, no, that although charter school kindergarten enrollment went up a little bit, about a thousand kids at non-classroom-based charter schools, it's way less than what the traditional public school system lost. So although charter school enrollment went up, we really can't accuse charter schools of being the culprit for the lost enrollment at traditional public schools. Their drop is way bigger than any growth that the charter schools had. Okay, so there's been a huge loss of students at traditional public school sites. And while there has been an uptick in students turning to charter public schools, that does not mean students from traditional public school sites are running to charters. There's more at play here, right? Yeah, a lot of families probably going to homeschooling, but also maybe a lot of families um, leaving the state. Maybe that's what we're also seeing here. And Jonathan, just for folks who may not know what a non-classroom-based charter school is, could you define that for us? Non-classroom-based is just one of many ways that we try to differentiate charter schools. There's a lot of unique ways that charter schools operate. Um, and a non-classroom-based charter school is just one of those. So when we think of a school, we usually think of a red brick building and kids going to the building every day. At a non-classroom-based school, less than 80% of kids learning is happening in one of those red brick buildings. I mean, and they may not even have a red brick building to begin with. Um, If you think about it, 80% is actually a pretty high bar to set when you define something like non-classroom-based learning. So some non-classroom-based schools, four days out of the week, they're at a school site, just like a traditional public school. But that last day out of the week, kids are not coming to the school site. They're doing project-based learning on their own. 
that school is still considered non-classroom based, even though most student learning is happening at a school site. So just to reiterate, 80% or less of student learning happening outside of school buildings, then you've got yourself a non-classroom based charter school. So that's a great segue to introduce our special guest who can talk about what this means from a charter school leader perspective. I'd like to introduce Caprice Young, who's the superintendent for Learn for Life. It's a non-classroom-based charter school that also offers families a homeschool component. Uh, Caprice is also the former president and CEO for the California Charter Schools Association. Caprice, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be able to be here. Tell us a little bit about uh, your school, Learn for Life. So Learn for Life is a network of nonprofit public schools that all use the Learn for Life model. And so our model is really all about personalized learning and career training and life skills. And we really concentrate on finding the students who have become disengaged. These are 14 to 24-year-olds who have left high school without, without graduating for a whole variety of reasons, often related to family violence or undiagnosed special ed issues or foster care or homelessness or pregnancy um, or parenting. And what we do is we help them get re-engaged and then graduate and move on to be able to have successful careers and college if that's what they want in their picture. Such an important educational alternative for so many young people. Since the pandemic, with families looking for more alternatives, have you seen big gains in the number of students enrolling at Learn for Life? Well, it's, you know, it's a little early to say uh, in terms of the school year that we're just entering. But if you compare the numbers that we have enrollment right now with, say, two years ago, because <laughs> I think that the last year, the pandemic year was a weird one. Um, but our enrollment is up about 5% over the 2019-20 school year. And so that's considerable. And I think part of it is really coming from the fact that you know, a lot of kids have, have gotten jobs. I mean, when, um, when a 17-year-old goes out and gets a job, it makes it almost impossible for them to have um, a regular traditional school situation because they just can't go between eight and three. And families families are needing their young people to work. And so we're able to, to provide the kind of flexibility where the student can still come to school, but on their own time in a, in a time frame that makes sense for them so that they can still fulfill family responsibilities at the same time as keeping their life on track. Well, another thing that I'm curious about, we t- and we talked about this earlier in the podcast, about the jump in private homeschooling. So families opting to just handle the homeschooling themselves. And I'm curious, I don't really understand fully the difference between a family that makes that decision to homeschool on their own versus um, maybe doing a totally remote program like you guys were offering during the pandemic. Can you help us understand what what is really so different about those two ways of educating a, a kid? Well, I think it's you know it's the difference between having um, having just in time and all the time support from a teacher versus having the parents be the primary educators, right? So so families that are 
um, that are specifically homeschooling their students outside of the public school system or the private school system are really taking on the duties of the teacher as well as the, as well as being parents. It's it's a lot harder. It's a lot of work, and it's also really different right now than it was before the pandemic. Before the pandemic, um, the California had actually a very large homeschooling community that acted as a community. So they collaborated around student achievement and student work. Families would get together um, and do classes together, all very informally, but in a coordinated way. I I don't think that what we're experiencing now with the response to COVID um, really counts truly as homeschooling. Uh, it's it's really it's really just parents parents feeling so frustrated and looking for a little predictability, and what we're finding is that our families are wanting to have support from the schools and from the teachers more than ever because our teachers and staff have become their anchors and their consistency, and that's really really key. Well, Caprice, thank you so much for joining us on the Charter Nation podcast. Thank you very much. Caprice is the superintendent of Learn for Life. She's also the former president and CEO of the California Charter Schools Association. I also want to thank Jonathan Slakey, my co-host for the segment. Jonathan is the director of data analysis at CCSA. I'm Anna Tentakulis, host of Charter Nation. Stay tuned for a preview of our next episode. Next time on Charter Nation, we devote an entire episode to issues impacting Latinx students in California in honor of Latino Heritage Month. You'll hear the story of Angelica Sandez, a high school senior at a career tech charter school in Fresno that is transforming her life and the lives of other students from farm working families. So I would, I'd really want to work for NASA. Um, I want to get an internship at JPL or Boeing or SpaceX, that'd be cool too. So this is anywhere that I could help build a rocket or something that goes to space. You'll also hear from a charter school leader in East Los Angeles, who's working to teach Latinx students about their indigenous roots. Our vision of native education, of indigenous education was from the perspective that each nation among indigenous peoples carries their own knowledge. And so when we talk about international education, we ought to include indigenous nations as distinct peoples. All that's next time on Charter Nation. I'm your host, Anna Tentakulis. Thanks for listening.